0: Well, good morning. Uh, it's great to be here with you this morning. Had I known that it was talk like yo today, I would have practiced maybe a little more. So my name is Eric Burnley. Um, I serve here at Genesis as an elder and with our band normally. Um, so this morning it is my great honor and privilege to be able to be up here to, uh, to open up God's Word with you together to see our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. But before we start, let's just uh, pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together this morning and open up your word. Uh, I just thank you for speaking to us, for providing a way for us to know your plan of salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. We come today as broken people who uh, need to be reminded of your grace and your mercy May we depend on you continuously for guidance as we seek to know you more, to trust you more, and share the hope that you've given us through your gospel, uh, just to those around us. Will you guide our time together this morning to see the wonder of the resurrection of Christ, to behold our God, to see him as beautiful and to see the resurrection hope that you've given us and your plan for our resurrection lives here and now. And we pray these things in the Lord Jesus' name, his, our risen King. Amen. All right, so who here has heard of a linchpin? Now modern Modern engineering may have rendered the simplistic linchpin a thing of the past, but uh, as you can see here, right, um, originally a linchpin was just a relatively small pin or fastener that was put in the end of an axle, and it was designed to literally keep the wheels from coming off. I don't think you would want to be traveling 2,000 miles on the Oregon Trail, pulling a cart. Without these, to keep your wagon on task, I doubt you would make it very far into Kansas, where you would undoubtedly die of dysentery. Right? (laughs) But over the years, the term linchpin has taken on a more general meaning, pointing to something that holds the various elements of a complicated structure together. A linchpin would be something that, if you got rid of it, the whole system would fall apart, kind of like wheels off of an axle. And to me, that's what comes to mind when we start thinking about the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. Without the resurrection, there is no salvation by faith in Christ, there is no justification by the blood of the Lamb, because the Lamb, Jesus, would have died and stayed dead. And therefore, our enemy death would never have been vanquished. Sinclair Ferguson said a resurrectionless gospel is no gospel at all. And in her book Confronting Jesus, Rebecca McLaughlin says Christianity without the resurrection makes about as much sense as the story of Romeo and Juliet without Juliet. So what we're going to do here is set out uh, we're going to set out to take a look at what the resurrection means, its implications. And I think we'll find that the resurrection of Jesus means really three things. Number one, it means Jesus is alive. Number two, the resurrection means we have hope. And number three, the resurrection means God has a plan. So that's where we're going, right? But first, I kind of thought it might be wise that we do not assume... That everyone here believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want this to be a safe place for doubts. Okay, But we don't have a lot of time this morning, and this is not meant to be a lecture in apologetics. So with that in mind, I would propose that we just kind of focus a little bit of time thinking about these two main areas of evidence that we have related to the resurrection. The empty tomb and the resurrection appearances. N.T. Wright says that neither the empty tomb by itself nor the appearances by themselves could have generated the early Christian belief. The empty tomb alone would be a puzzle and a tragedy. Sightings of an apparently alive Jesus by themselves would have been classified as visions or hallucinations. However, an empty tomb and appearances of a living Jesus taken together would have presented a powerful reason for the emergence of the belief. So now we have the empty tomb reported, not only in all four Gospels by several believers, but we also have it reported by the Jewish Sanhedrin, their ruling council, as well as Roman soldiers. So now if you you think about the fact that most reports of the resurrection, they originated nearby in Jerusalem. That means that if a body had been available, the Sanhedrin very easily could have dispelled all of these reports, and Christianity never would have spread like it did. It would have been squashed immediately, just like the other factions, based on individuals who also claimed to be the Messiah. Yes, there were others The big difference there is that when they died, their bodies were present and accounted for. You know, kind of like here, there's his body. Obviously not the Messiah. Let's move on. That was not the case with Jesus. They had no body. So for our purposes this morning, we will consider the empty tomb an accepted historical fact. But the big question here is, why was the tomb empty? And that's where things really get interesting. So to help us answer that, in addition to reading scripture, of course, I found this really short book uh, by Val Grieve called Your Verdict on the Empty Tomb to be really helpful. So we're going to take a look at four potential answers as to why the tomb might have been empty. And they can be summarized in four words. Fraud, swoon, hallucination, and miracle. So fraud, had Christ not been risen from the dead, that means his physical body, his physically dead body, had to be someplace, right? To refute the claim that Jesus rose from the dead, the Jews just simply needed to produce his body. We know that never happened. They couldn't produce a body, and that may be primarily why they claimed fraud. Um, That Jesus' body was stolen by the disciples. So let's look at a couple implications here. So, number one, if the Jews believed that the disciples stole the body of Jesus, why were they not officially charged? Roman law stated that the body of a condemned criminal belonged to the state, which is why Joseph had to ask permission of Pilate in order to bury the body of Jesus. To steal a body was a really serious offense, but there's no record of the disciples being charged. Number two, What was their motive? They would knowingly be stealing his body in order to spread a lie, and they quite likely would have a lot to lose in doing so, right? Val Grieve says people may die for what they sincerely believe is true, but it's another thing to die for what you know is a deliberate lie. Also, if they had actually stolen the body of Jesus— It would be incredibly difficult to maintain that lie and convince others that Christ rose from the dead. Chuck Colson, who was involved in the Watergate scandal, he said it was only two weeks before that lie imploded. Ten people, two weeks. And you're talking 2,000 years of carrying out a hoax. That's kind of hard to believe. Swoon. Let's look at swoon. So the idea here is... The tomb was empty because Jesus wasn't really dead. They just thought he was dead. Hence, swoon. So a couple points here. Number one, Romans knew how to kill. They perfected the art of crucifixion. History records on one occasion, 6,000 men were crucified in a single day. They had, they had it down to a science with rules and regulations, and they knew their job well. They would recognize a dead man. Number two, if this swoon theory is correct, think about the physical implications for Jesus here. Jesus has been flogged, hung on a cross, speared in his side, buried in a tomb with a giant stone rolled over it for three days with no food or water. And then he's supposed to have somehow gotten the stone rolled away, snuck out, passed the, the guards who, by the way, would have been shamed, ridiculed, punished, if not killed for not having carried out their duties properly, and then crept away and subsequently passed himself off as, a, as risen from the dead such that the disciples took a look at him and said, I want a resurrection body like that. That is a big leap. But aside from that Physical, the physical implications there, it would perhaps be even more difficult to believe that Jesus would have lied about rising from the dead. It's entirely contrary to his, the moral character that he exhibited throughout his entire life, time here on earth, right? Remember our scripture last week that Mike pointed to, First Peter 2 verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Let's move on to hallucinations. So the notion here is that you wish for something so much that you begin to believe it is true. And in this case, the disciples supposedly believed so much that Jesus was going to rise from the dead that they believed it to be true when it wasn't. Now the problem with that is what the Bible actually says. The disciples did not think that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. Now... In our day, we can kind of jump on this assumption where we view the people in the Bible as antiquated and easily given to non scientific, uh, to believe in non scientific or miraculous things, right? C.S. Lewis uh, coined this as the term chronological snobbery, where basically in our current time we look back and we think, oh, those people. They were so simple, so gullible. But we, we really know. We really know resurrection couldn't have happened. But that's simply not what we see in the Bible. If you look at the Easter morning accounts, no one expected the resurrection. If you just consider their actions. The women were on the way to the tomb to embalm Jesus with spices. They were carrying all this. And they were discussing the practicality of how to get the stone rolled away. They weren't thinking that that tomb would be open and empty. Upon finding the tomb empty, Mary Magdalene jumps to the conclusion that someone stole the body, not that Jesus rose. And after their experience at the tomb, three women go back. They tell the disciples that Christ had risen, and none of them believe. John 20 does say that Peter and John went and ran back to the tomb to investigate, and John believed, but it still says they didn't really understand. None of them were sitting there Easter morning anticipating this. The resurrection was nowhere on their radar. It was as impossible for them to believe as it is for people in the 21st century. Now, from another interesting angle, David Holloway states, a hallucination means seeing something else and mistaking it for what you're looking for. But in the New Testament account of the resurrection appearances, you, you get the exact opposite of that. Mary did not see the gardener near the tomb and think he was Jesus. She saw Jesus and thought he was the gardener. The two on the road to Emmaus, they did not see a stranger and think he was Jesus. They saw Jesus and thought he was a stranger. The apostles in the upper room, they did not see a ghost and think it was Jesus. They saw Jesus and thought they'd seen a ghost. Now, additionally, hallucinations are usually individually experienced and extremely subjective. So if you think about it, you're you're crossing the Atlantic Ocean. Okay? Suddenly, your ship wrecks and sinks, but you and a few others, you manage to escape. And you're left floating in the ocean for a couple days with no food, no sleep, no fresh water. And all of a sudden, one of the guys looks, and he points, and he sees a ship. But it's a hallucination. Do the others see it? Or do they look and see... Jason Momoa, on a giant seahorse, dressed as a cow, holding a sign that says, eat more chicken. (laughs) Additionally, right, I mean, these hallucinations would never have been seen the same way by two different individuals, let alone 12 or 500, like scripture reports. Now, the, there may be other minor options here, but the primary fourth option is the miracle that Jesus did, in fact, miraculously rise from the dead. And that's why his body was not present in the tomb. Now, as to our other form of evidence, one, one of the primary ways that we see the resurrection manifest in Scripture is by the sheer number of post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. In his book, Can We Trust the Gospels, Peter J. Williams lists them out for us. Um, And these are all rooted in Scripture. I love this. The resurrected Jesus is recorded as appearing in Judea and in Galilee, in town and countryside, indoors and outdoors, in the morning, in the evening, by prior appointment and without prior appointment. Close and distant, on a hill, by a lake, to groups of men, to groups of women, to individuals, to groups of up to 500. Sitting, standing, walking, eating, and always talking. So some of these manifest in our scripture passages that we're going to take a look at this morning. So this is a good time for us to go ahead and open our Bibles to our first passage, which will be in Luke 24, verse 36. Now, if you don't have a Bible... ...or a device with a Bible app. We do have some baskets at the end of these rows that have some Bibles. In that Bible, we will be on page 981. <clears throat> um, and please feel free to take that Bible home if you, if you need one. It would be a great joy for us to need to replenish our Bibles. So, if you walk into Luke 24, verse 36, you immediately feel like you walked into a theater six minutes after the opening credits. So, we're going to rewind just a skosh to verse 33. Now, the first 49 verses of Luke 24 is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And verse 33 is the tail end of the appearance to, of two, to, of Jesus to two disciples on the road To Emmaus, So that is the they that we're referring to in verse 33. So I'll start there. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. This is kind of funny because these two, they show up to the disciples with their own story. And they are met with the disciples sharing a different story. That Jesus appeared to Peter. Jesus had a busy day. Then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Can you imagine that? And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So, so this appearance, starting in verse 36, has a companion text. In John 20, about verse 19, which tells us the doors were locked because the disciples were in fear of the Jews. So there's this odd scenario here where Jesus appears standing in the room even though the door was locked. Now we have to pay attention to what the text actually says and be careful not to jump to conclusions by human reasoning. It doesn't necessarily say that Jesus' body was immaterial like a ghost and that he passed through walls and locked doors. Some people have proclaimed that. I'm just going to say, let's look at the text. There are other occurrences like this that don't necessarily make human sense, right? We studied Acts not too long ago. Think about the, uh, Acts 12 where the angel appears and breaks Peter out of prison. He says that it felt like a vision. Things could have been hidden from the disciples' sight. We don't know because it's not in the text. But let's look at what we do know. Jesus is in front of them when they thought that he was dead. Remember, even first century Jews knew that dead means dead. Dead people don't just appear in rooms. And Jesus understands this. And true to his character, he lovingly invites them in. To come and see, to behold the wondrous mystery of the resurrection, which means that Jesus is alive. That's really our first point here. We spend a lot of time here. Jesus shows them his hands and his feet. Similar to the account of Jesus appearing a week later to Thomas, his hands and his feet are used to identify him because they bear the marks of the nails from his crucifixion. His side as well, where the spear entered. Remember, these all fulfill Old Testament prophecy, like Mike has pointed to in the past couple weeks in Isaiah 53. Um, Now, there is no mistaking here that this is Jesus in physical, material, bodily form before them. When they see him and they think that he's a spirit, he responds to the contrary. Look at verse 39. He explicitly states he is not a spirit but has flesh and bone. To prove this even further, he eats fish. Now can you imagine the grace that they felt in that moment? Seeing their friend, who they thought that they, that it was gone forever. But not only their friend, they can now see him as the risen king, alive right in front of them. It is an incredible gift for them to get To be invited to see and behold the risen Savior. And that's precisely what we're invited into today. This is not some man-made myth like Zeus or other Greek gods. It's not a Disney fairy tale. The resurrection is a historical fact reported, confirmed by hundreds of voices. Christian and non-Christian alike. And God wants us to see his son alive. Now, it's important, I think, to see the physical, material nature of his body here, and Wayne Grudem explains why. He says, specifically, Jesus' physical resurrection body affirms the goodness of God's original creation of man, not as a mere spirit like the angels, but as a creature with a physical body that was very good. We must not fall into the error of thinking that non-material existence is somehow a better form of existence for creatures. When God made us as the pinnacle of his creation, he gave us physical bodies. In a perfected physical body, Jesus rose from the dead, now reigns in heaven, and will return to take us to be with him forever. Now this error of thinking that non-material existence is Somehow better, it comes really from the thinking of Plato. He reasoned that this material existence was a lesser existence and just vain evil shadows of the real existence that was ethereal and immaterial. And that when we die, we leave behind this material existence for our true ultimate existence, which is immaterial. So that thinking led to things like dualism and it even entered uh, the Christian belief system a little bit in a faction called Gnosticism that was ruled out of heresy. Uh, which we're not going to dig into this morning. But it's perhaps this line of thinking that could have influenced the Corinthians to reject the notion of the resurrection of the dead. And why Paul needed to write 1 Corinthians 15, which is where we're moving next. If you could flip over there. That is, I don't know what page number. Sorry. Flip over to First Corinthians 15, please. So just a reminder, again, our approach with a sermon like this is to look at these texts at kind of a high overview, just to get some main points. We're not going to be able to dig too deep. And But Mike did preach through First Corinthians a couple of years ago, and I would certainly encourage you to go find his sermon's On this chapter, chapter 15, it would have been April 2020. I know, nobody wants to think about anything related to (laughs) April 2020, but those the sermons were great, and I think they're available in our YouTube archive because we were at home at that time, unable to gather like we can now. Thankfully, we can gather. So let's start with verses 1 through 11. The gist of 1 Corinthians 15, again, is that some of these Corinthian believers had decided, for whatever reason, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in the resurrection of Jesus, but did not believe that that believers would subsequently be raised. So Paul's writing them in support of the resurrection of the dead for believers. And to kick that off... In verses 3 through 5 or so, he calls out what is essentially an early Christian creed. It's this stylized form of four statements. And there's actually certain words here that Paul wasn't really known for using, which, which kind of helps point us toward it probably being a creed-like statement that was received, as Paul mentions, and then passed on. It is a declaration of the gospel proclaiming the beliefs that all Christians would have in common. And that's important because he's establishing common ground here. That they would have heard phrased this way. He's reminding them of the gospel story that they believe. And this gospel story is the same one that we believe, right? This is the same thing that we talk about every week. And I certainly would not be doing my job if we didn't talk about the beauty of the gospel message, The message that I am a sinful man who is absolutely incapable of standing as righteous in my own strength before the one true holy God. I am not perfect, like Mike mentioned last week, right? It was like he was preaching about me. I do fall short. And Romans 3, though, tells me that I'm not the only one. Everyone is like me in that respect. Everyone needs a savior, just like I do, in order to be considered righteous in God's eyes. And that is precisely why God sent his son, Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life, so you don't have to. And you are saved by faith in his work on the cross. Now, Paul doesn't stop there. If you look down at verse 5, He starts out listing all these groups of people to whom Jesus appeared after he rose. Verse 6 says the group of 500, most of whom are still alive. That's one of the best ways at that time of gathering evidence is to go talk to someone who was there. Think about it this way. Uh, Who here was at the church picnic a couple weeks ago? Right? Who here remembers last year's picnic at Greensfelder with all the ticks? I bet my kids remember it. You should go talk to him. That's the context here, okay? They didn't have the internet, but they did have people that they could go talk to. Now, a quick note on what you don't see here, and that is the resurrection appearances to the women. Now, back then, no matter what we think today, the testimony of women was not seen as reliable and would not be accepted as viable evidence. That may be Paul's line of thinking here, that as N.T. Wright phrases it, the inclusion of those appearances to the women could perhaps be apologetically embarrassing. In other words, in their day, mentioning that could have been a stumbling block for some people in their apologetics. The apologetics is just the intellectual defense of the truth of the gospel. Some people might not have been able to get past that and believe, so that could be why Paul left them out. On the other hand, all four Gospels state the first people Jesus really appeared to on Easter morning were essentially all women. Now, if you were making up the story of the resurrection, you'd want your story to be accepted, right? So why on earth would you choose women to be your first witnesses? Their testimony would not be credible in the eyes of Jewish society, And in that light, it really only makes it seem more credible, at least to me, that it actually did happen that way. So perhaps that's why the testimony of the women is missing there. So then Paul mentions the appearances of James and himself, Paul. Now these I consider particularly important because each of these individuals would have been called at best a skeptic of And at worst, an enemy to the gospel. So James here is Jesus' half-brother. And we know from John 7, before the resurrection, James was not a believer. Right? And starting in Acts 12, verse 17, he subsequently becomes one of the most prominent leaders only after the Holy Spirit changes him. Right? The Holy Spirit enters... James changes him, brings him to belief, and then he becomes useful for the kingdom. Okay? He wrote the book of James and eventually went to his death as a martyr for Christ. Now for Paul, like we just studied in the book of Acts, Paul was a Pharisee <clears throat> persecuting Christian believers. He mentions that here. And one day on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to him. Now that appearance, remember it's not a vision, It was an appearance, which is why it's here in this collection. That appearance led to one of the most radical and productive conversions in the Bible, as he spent the rest of his life taking the gospel to the nations and ultimately writing like a fourth of the New Testament. Now, these two appearances are some of the best evidence in support of the resurrection. Neither has anything to do with the empty tomb, other than Christ was risen, neither has anything to do with hallucinations, as neither believed Jesus was the Messiah before the appearance. Paul's also was not an isolated experience because the others with him heard the voice as well. Yet both of them did a complete 180-degree turn in their belief in Jesus as the Messiah, to the point of giving their lives for the spread of the gospel. Now many other disciples also subsequently committed their lives to the gospel but they did not start out like James and Paul right? as skeptics or enemies. The trajectory of their lives completely changed because of their experience with Christ. How about you? Has your life been changed like that? Have you met the risen Lord? And if so, does that did that meeting really change your trajectory? And I think that's really important for us to reflect on when we're looking at this. Now, moving on, I think this is where we can kind of begin to see that the resurrection of Jesus means we have hope. We'll read starting in verse 12. <clears throat> Look there with me. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And you are still in your sins. Then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Now this, uh, <clears throat> the word preaching there is not referring to the act of preaching. It's actually referring to the gospel message itself. Paul's saying the whole gospel would be in vain. Remember, these Corinthians now were not denying the resurrection of Jesus. They were denying that there would be a subsequent resurrection of believers in general. And Paul argues against that by stating, if there's no resurrection of the dead, that means Christ himself hasn't even been raised. And if that's true, what are we even doing? If you don't believe that Christ rose from the dead, why would you place your faith in him? If he didn't rise, he can't save you because he hasn't defeated death. And if our faith in him is, the, is only good enough for this life only, we are in deep trouble. The resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity because Jesus is alive and will come again. John Stott says the resurrection was the divine reversal of the human verdict. Man put Christ to death God raised him up. And when that happened, Christ defeated death forever. And that means we have hope. We have hope of justification. I know, big word. Wayne Grudem explains it this way, okay? By raising Christ from the dead, God the Father was in effect saying that he approved of Christ's work of suffering and dying for our sins. That his work was completed And that Christ no longer had any need to remain dead. There was no penalty left to pay for sin. No more wrath of God to bear. No more guilt or liability to punishment. All had been completely paid for. And no guilt remained. In the resurrection, God was saying to Christ, I approve of what you have done and you find favor in my sight. Now God then subsequently makes that declaration also apply to believers once we trust in Christ for salvation. So Christ's resurrection then proves he earned our justification. We're saved by faith in him. Now think about Paul's methodical approach here, okay? He's already established in verse 3 that they did believe that Christ did rise. So he's leveraging that statement of faith to say... Christ is risen, and you believe that, therefore you must acknowledge that since believers are united with Christ, we too shall experience a resurrection. Romans 6 explains this well. I'm just going to read verse 5 there. Uh, It's somewhere in there. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In verse 23, Paul's talking about how Christ is the first fruits. Look there. That's this interesting picture. Um, In their society, the first portion of the harvest would have been brought to the temple and offered to God. It would consecrate the whole harvest that was to come. The first fruits indicate that there was more fruit to come of a similar kind. Jesus was not the first to rise from the dead, right? We know he himself raised some like Lazarus. But Lazarus had to physically die again. Jesus was the first raised from the dead to never die again. That's what's different here, right? Jesus is alive, albeit different. His resurrection body was different. And perhaps that's why people in appearances often don't recognize him. That his body is no longer under the effects of a sinful, broken world subject to illnesses, uh, injury, decay, and ultimately death. This is what Paul will later, um, in this chapter, describe as the corruptible versus the incorruptible body, or the perishable and the imperishable. Let's take, a, uh, let's take a, an example here. So this is an oven, okay, It is a brand new DeLonghi countertop convection oven. Now this is Owen. (laughs) Owen the oven. Now Owen has existed at our house for, I don't know, like 12 years. And I'll I'll tell you, he's been subjected to the effects of a fallen sinful world. (laughs) One One of Owen's dials broke... The other two were cracked. Owen's handle broke off, I don't know how many years ago, thereby exposing these screws, and I couldn't get it back in, uh, that, and they eventually needed to be covered up for little fingers. So, hence the corks. And then soon after the corks appeared, I made a comment about it looking like it had eyes, and my wife took that one step further and added googly eyes. So now Owen... Has a face and a name, and we can't get rid of it because, as an oven, Owen still actually works. We just don't know what temperature he's at. But, in some odd, perhaps heretical way, this is kind of what we're talking about here, right? If you replace the corruptible body with the restored, incorruptible body, it is entirely understandable that you might not recognize it. Jesus is alive but different, because his body is incorruptible. It is still a physical material body, but death has no claim on it, because death has been defeated, right? Gordon Fee says Christ's resurrection demands our resurrection. Otherwise, death is never defeated, and God cannot be all in all. That's where Paul's going later in this chapter, which, by the way, is really long, and we will never get to all of First Corinthians fifteen. I would encourage you to read it later today. But this is the kind of resurrection that Paul is really talking about here. He's telling the Corinthian believers that they can expect this for themselves. Now that is a great hope, is it not? The hope of a body that will no longer be ravaged by cancer, knee and hip replacements, COVID murder, all because of God's restorative resurrection power. Now there's a point uh, back in uh, our passage in Luke that I'd like to return to in verse 36. You don't have to t- return there. It's short. I'll read it. Jesus appears and says, Peace be with you. And it's important to see the heart of Jesus here. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on Luke, writes, this was a wonderful saying when we consider the men to whom it was addressed. It was addressed to 11 disciples who three days before had shamefully forsaken their master and fled. They had broken their promises. They had forgotten their professions of readiness to die for Jesus. They had scattered each to his own home and left their master to die alone. One of them had even denied him three times. All of them had proved backsliders and cowards. And yet, not a word of rebuke is spoken. Not a single sharp saying falls from his lips. Calmly and quietly, he appears in the midst of them and just begins by speaking of peace. Now, I, <clears throat> I had a bit of a, an issue at work this week. I work as a software engineer. And uh, there was this bit of code that I had worked on, I don't know, like a month ago. And we pushed it to a website like two weeks ago. It was performing seemingly fine until this week when it wasn't. Uh, it became a problem. So the, it was a quick fix, thankfully. And I was shown the grace of God. Uh, through my team who rallied together to get the job done but this again reminded me oh so well that I am not perfect and for a day or so I was just filled with a lot of anxiety a lot of I was pretty depressed and I felt things swarming around me kind of albeit primarily by my own doing you ever been your worst your own worst enemy but it was this verse that brought me to tears. This little verse where the risen Christ, the King of Kings, he sees his disciples. He knows what they have been through. He knows where their hearts are. All the anxiety, and he says to them, peace. Now the the word, the Greek word here, that's used is really, really close in meaning to the Hebrew word shalom, which we've discussed before as pointing to the way things ought to be. Perfect peace as creation was intended without the effects of sin, the fall. And in that moment of my revisiting this verse, I just felt my Savior telling me, kind of like I am picturing the disciples Hearing him say something like, This is this is not the way things are supposed to be. But I want you to look at me, to see my resurrected body, and know there is hope. There is a day coming where I will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning crying pain anymore and there will be perfect peace i want everyone to experience that peace a peace that i felt in that moment if you're here today and you've never trusted in jesus before the hope of this peace of christ is the main thing i want you to see today now thirdly i think the resurrection means god has a plan And that's because the resurrection begins the new age. Now, the simplest way that I've kind of seen this explained is from N.T. Wright in like a little YouTube video. If you would think of this arm as the present age, okay? From creation all the way until Christ's second coming at the tips of my fingers, okay? Now, if you think of this arm as the age to come, the new age, which starts at the resurrection of Christ, the first fruits right at the other fingertips here so these two these two ages they don't go one right into the other they actually overlap okay and we're there in the overlap christ has not come again but he has risen and inaugurated the next era of god's plan for salvation we call this kind of the now and the not yet right And that really, what that means, though, is that we can't just stop at seeing the resurrection as only the answer to our individual salvation. God is in the business of restoring sinners, yes, but he is also, he's really in the business of restoring all things, all of creation. Now, some of you have trudged through our Leadership 222 class, and hopefully you recall Uh, You didn't block it out. the explicit gospel book, which refers to this as the gospel in the air. That's really what we're talking about in that whole section. God is restoring all of creation until one day Christ comes again and the perfect peace of shalom is fully restored. That's basically what I think the believer's application is today. We read, like in Luke 24, verse 47, that the risen Jesus had said repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. It's very much like the Great Commission in Matthew 28. God's plan to restore people of all nations is through the spread of the gospel, and he uses people like you and me to do that. But also, I would, take, I would again encourage you to take a look at 1 Corinthians 15 because the last verse of that chapter, verse 58, is the culmination of of the whole chapter. And this is what it says. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's the cap to this entire chapter, right? God is in the business of of redeeming his people, and it is for his purpose of redeeming all things cosmically. We are redeemed with a job to do. If you've been reconciled to God by faith in Christ, you are called not to sit and wait for the second coming, but to be a reconciler in the now and the not yet. You don't want the transitory thinking of Plato and Gnosticism to kind of take over, thinking this is this material existence is not my home, I'm just passing through. God is sovereign. He has a plan. He will bring it to completion in his own timing, but you are called to a job. And you will experience such great blessing by heeding his call to join in his plan of restoring all things. Now as we close and uh, the band heads up, uh, some of you may have heard, I think Scott mentioned it earlier actually, of the passing of author and pastor Tim Keller earlier uh, this week. And there's this fantastic video that was shared of him just kind of speaking to the hope of the resurrection. And I'll share that on social media later, but this quote here kind of sums it up. If the resurrection is true, then everything's going to be all right. That's the piece that I was talking about here, right? So if you've, if you've not trusted yet in Christ, and you feel a pull in your heart toward longing for that perfect peace of knowing that all your failures, all your issues, every time you've ever ignored or turned your back on God, all of that has been paid for by the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Please don't leave here without talking to someone. We're going to have a couple people over here aside here to, to pray with you if you feel led to do that. And now we, uh, we respond, now to this word, in worship, presenting our offerings to God. Now, if you're a guest here today, we certainly do not ask that you give. Just being here is your gift to us, okay? But we're going to pray, and then we'll sing about the resurrected Christ together. Father, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus, which gives us the chance to have hope of salvation By faith in him. We thank you. For showing us the heart of Jesus. In these resurrection stories. To see the hope of peace. That he brings to the world. And I pray that you would. Lead us to trust in you. As we follow. The call to participate. In your plan of restoring all creation. Lord would you help us today. To see. Behold. And savor the resurrected Son of God who is alive. We love you, Lord. Amen.